Welcome you. My name is Albert Levingood. I'm an elder here. And uh, our pastor uh, is taking his vacation the next couple weeks. Uh, so please be in prayer for uh, Dan and Mako uh, and the kids that uh, they would be refreshed and renewed uh, in the good grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, this, uh, this morning, uh, Scott Kennedy will be preaching. Um, I really, oh, there he is. Whew. I knew he was here. I thought maybe he bolted or something. So, um, But he'll be preaching uh, this morning as uh, Dan is on vacation. Uh, as we prepare our hearts uh, for worship, I would ask that Colby uh, come forward and read us the meditation from Mark 12. Mark 12, 18-27. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise up from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the books of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Hear the call to worship, the psalmist cries out, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation 
and my God. Let us stand and sing hymn 301, join all the glorious names. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before your throne and we give you praise, for you are a holy, holy, holy God. Oh Lord, we give you praise for your perfectness. We give you praise for the beauty of your majesty. Lord, we give you praise for you are steadfast in your love for us. Oh Lord, as we gaze upon your holiness, make us aware of our sin. Make us aware of the depth of our offense against you. Oh Lord, make us aware of the ways in which we still follow the old self. Lord, open our mouths to confess that we may yet again praise you for the salvation that you have offered to us freely in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we thank you for sending your son to die for us uh, that we might have life. Oh Lord, I pray that as we uh, come before the throne of grace this morning that you would help us to sing with joy that you would help us to confess, that you would help us to pray for one another and for this community uh, with confidence, knowing that 
you are the all-powerful, all-knowing, steadfast, loving God. And so, Lord, as we come before you and uh, pray the prayer that you have taught us, we pray that it would not be from habit uh, or roteness, but that we would come uh, praying with all sincerity and all joy, for you have redeemed us. And so we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Please be seated. Um, so, if you could uh, just flip over for a second to page seven. Uh, in a minute, we're going to have a time of prayer for one another and a time of prayer for our community. And um, you can see uh, there are prayer requests for uh, our CVPC family as well as uh, for the surrounding community. Uh, I'm not going to read those out, but uh, I would uh, invite you to uh, pray uh, prayers of supplication, of lament, uh, of praise as is appropriate. I would also um, like to just make a brief announcement to guide your prayers more specifically for uh, the Burke family. Uh, last night, Wayne uh, had a massive uh, stroke, um, and uh, it is believed that uh, he will not make it uh, past the next 24 or 48 hours. So um, please uh, cry out on behalf of, of the Burke family. Um, the psalmist in uh, Psalm 42 um, captures what our hearts have collectively been saying. Um, you heard uh, the call to worship. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Um, why are you in turmoil within me? And uh, if you go look at Psalm 42, there's lots of different reasons that the psalmist express, expresses. And one of them are all these waves and breakers that just feel like they're constantly coming over and, and ravaging uh, the psalmist. Uh, and it causes them to cry out, uh, much like we're going to do this morning. And so let us read there on page three responsively. And after I say the second uh, L, uh, we're going to go right into a time of prayer. So um, please pray as you are led. Uh, and then after a time, I'll close. Hear the word uh, from Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams... So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God?
Let us respond to the psalmist by crying out to our God aloud in petition as a congregation for our community. Let us go to him in prayer.
Oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, your people, which finds itself grieving and lamenting. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the people that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let us continue in our worship as we delight in our God, uh, the Holy One, singing, Behold Our God. Let us stand and sing. It's on the back side of the bulletin. in his hands who has numbered every grain of sand kings and nations tremble at his voice all creation rises to rejoice behold our God seated on his throne come let us adore You will reign for 
Bobby, is this the right height? Can, all right, good. He offered the uh, portable mic, but I'm too tied to my notes, so I can't really wander. <laughs> um, as Albert mentioned, uh, my name is Scott Kennedy, and I'm an elder here at CVPC, and we're in the middle of a summer sermon series on the church. You have the worldwide, time-transcending Big C Church, the Church Universal, or the Catholic Church, as we say. And then you have the local Little C Church, uh, like CVPC, it's a particular embodiment of the Big C Church that is the central and essential agency by which life in this world is rightly organized, understood, and unified. It's not democracy, capitalism, uh, socialism, secular humanism, or even Coca-Cola that provides world peace and harmony. Um, it's, it's, now, Gerald told me to cut out all the jokes so it would go quicker, but... Um, not taken as advice. Um, it's the Church of Jesus Christ that's the most powerful and influential organism in the history of the world. And our, our series this summer specifically explores the local church and tries to answer that age-old question of what is the good life, how does one find the good life, and how does one go about living the good life? And last week you heard from Dr. Bill Tate who preached from Philemon on the power of words and how our new names in Christ reflect how we grow in grace together. And today we're going to build upon that as we look at how the church is a dynamic community dependent on a living Lord as it seeks to be in mission to a changing world. So the scripture passage we'll look at today is in 1 Peter um, uh, chapter 1. Uh, it's page 1014 in your pew Bibles. Uh, it's right after Hebrews, or if you're working backwards, it's actually a little easier for me. Revelation, Jude, the Johns, 2 Peter, and then 1 Peter. So Read with me together. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away 
all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying a stone as in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honors for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. May the Lord bless us by the reading and teaching of his word. So 2017 marks the 30th anniversary of U2's 1987 Joshua Tree album. It's a groundbreaking not only for its sound and, and its songs, but also for its prophetic ethos. 87 was the height of the Cold War. Uh, it was a time of economic prosperity, social inequality, and nuclear fear. And with the Joshua Tree, unlike a lot of their contemporary bands at the time, they preached out against the injustice, they lamented loss, and they cried out with hope that there might be something meaningful left in the world. And I remember listening to that album a lot because it was the first cassette I ever bought. Before that, it was LPs and eight tracks that tells you a little bit about my age. Um, but um, to commemorate this 30th anniversary, they not only released a 30th anniversary box set, with remastered songs, but they decided to take a break from their studio work. Um, and the, um, the band couldn't resist booking a tour of quickly sold out shows of stadium concerts featuring all the songs from their 1987 album. So this 2017 version of the Joshua, Joshua Tree Tour, which, which kicked off back in May, has sold over 2.4 million tickets worldwide, and at least a million fans have seen them in attendance so far. Um, USA Today writes, 30 years can't dull searing music, hopeful lyrics, or the captivating Irish band behind them. And if I'm honest with you, I've already bought my tickets as well to see them in September. But were it not for what happened just a few years after the release of that album, I might be seeing them at Riverbend next year as the headlining act rather than them playing to millions of fans worldwide. After Joshua Tree, you two were on top, on top of the world. There was even a, a, a documentary movie that hit movie theaters. But in October of 1990, they found themselves back in the studio after a series of setbacks. In an attempt to both reinvent their sound and themselves as a band, they left Ireland, they went to Berlin. It was um, right after uh, the unification of Germany. It was a, an irony lost on no one. And, and they set up in, in this ho big hotel. But the band was dealing with a lot of issues, personal issues from marital separation to substance abuse, as well as conflicting ideas and agendas 
um, about the future direction of the band. And in an interview, uh, the drummer, Larry Mullen Jr., describes a separation within the band that left them feeling, uh, gave them feelings of alarm, separation, feeling, feelings of being left out, having diminished input. He says, it was the start of the chopping down of the Joshua Tree, but it was also the dismantling of U2 as we had known it. I thought this might be the end. We had always been through tough circumstances before and found our way out, but it was always outside influences that we were fighting against. For the first time ever, it felt like the cracks were within. And in response to that, Bono, the lead singer, says, what we thought were just hairline cracks that could be easily fixed turned out to be more serious. The walls needed underpinning. We had to put down new foundations or the house would fall down. In fact, it was falling down all around us. So here, here he had the band uh, in another city, running up hotel bills, paying a crew, all these professional people, and they're wondering, have we reached our limitations, um, both musically and creatively um, as songwriters? And, and then as ba uh, the bassist, Adam Clayton, describes it, we weren't getting anywhere, and then one, this song, one, fell into our laps, and suddenly we hit a groove. The Edge had been playing around on his guitar with some half-finished ideas, trying to improvise, and Bono joins in on the acoustic guitar, and, and, and these lyrics, as he, as he says, just fell out of the sky. And, and the Edge's quote is, at the instant we were recording one, I got a very strong sense of its power. We were all playing together in this big recording room, a huge eerie ballroom full of ghosts of war, and everything fell into place. Uh, you two lyrics are this, those funny lyrics where sometimes you think they're singing about sex, but they're really singing about God, and sometimes when they're singing about God, they're sing you think they're singing about something else. And, and on the surface, one is a song about relationships. It captures the complications of intense and intimate connections. There's this implication of guilt felt by someone who's just walked out on a long-term love. Bono asks, have you come here for forgiveness? Have you come to raise the dead? Have you come here to play Jesus to the lepers in your head? But the song's also a meditation on their Berlin sojourn to the extent of it being a test of the band's unity. And for you too, the song ultimately reminded them of what held them together and what propelled them forward. And so with that Berlin session in the bag, they headed back to Dublin and things really fell into place. One became one of U2's biggest hits, garnering critical accolades, lots of you know top 10, top 100 lists. It's covered by numerous artists and uh, something Something Scott said this morning during Sunday School reminded me of this. Oftentimes when songs um, are written or poetry is written when we're crying out, um, those are the things that last and stand the test of time. And um, the one is a song that resonates strongly with people who have experienced a deep connection, love, conflict, alienation, and hopefully reconciliation. If we look at our text today from 1 Peter, um, in around 60 AD, the people to whom the Apostle Peter was writing to were facing their own internal identity issues. While the early church had grown in leaps and bounds, many were now confused and discouraged by the persecution that they were encountering due to their faith. Perhaps those scattered elect, those sojourning as aliens, were now thinking that the mystery of the Old Testament prophecies had not been revealed in Christ. Or maybe they were thinking it was mostly true but perhaps God wasn't who he said he was. Perhaps now came that inevitable, inevitable post-fame flop that th good things never last. 
and it was all too good to be true. They were dealing with more than hairline cracks in their faith. Their foundations of their core beliefs were in danger of crumbling as they were wondering if following Jesus was worth the cost. Those thoughts are not unlike our own thoughts today, are they? We say intellectually that the gospel is true, but in our hearts we struggle to believe it, to find the faith to believe it. And we often read, I think, to understand rather than read to believe. And the world around us makes it look like what we read isn't true. We believe good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. Uh, we look at the news or Facebook and it's an, a daily onslaught of stories on domestic violence, murder, racism, terrorism, foreign wars, nuclear arms races, other social injustices. On one hand, we see acts of police brutality. And on the other hand, we see um, uh, we hear of officers that are murdered in cold blood. And sin, pardon me for a second here, and sin is celebrated in the public square. Persecution of Christians seems to be on the rise, although for us I think it's more about marginalization here in America. But we ask ourselves, is God really in control? Is this really the good news? Peter starts his letter to these disbanded brothers and sisters in Christ and to you and I in the 21st century, um, reminding us that we've been called into a living hope, an imperishable inheritance. There's this acknowledgement that there still may be trials. But the struggles we're trying to avoid, Peter says, are more valuable than riches of gold. And through this testing, our faith is proved, and God in Christ is glorified. And I find this interesting because oftentimes when we go through trials, we think about ourselves, don't we? We think about how this trial is making me stronger. What, how's the song go? That which, that, which doesn't kill, that which doesn't kill me makes us stronger, or however it goes, the, the tune's in my head. Um, but Peter's focus here hints at our trials have a higher purpose. They turn us away from ourselves and towards something other. So picking up in what we read in verse 13 of chapter 1, Peter tells us that our hope is fully on the grace of Christ as we prepare our minds for action and our sober mind. It's like he's saying, it's about to get real. It's getting serious. You need to remember who and whose you are and how you got here. Don't fall back on your former ways of ignorance. Don't rely on your own righteousness, but instead be like obedient children. Obedient children, those who are teachable, who desire to honor, who respond in gratitude so that we might love God, love others, and obey him. And, and he has this call here, beginning in verse 15, to be holy because God is holy, followed by verse 17 where he says, the Lord judges impartially according to each one's deeds. It's a little scary when I read that. I don't think he's talking about merit, though, or reward in terms of salvation, but I think he's saying, to an extent, what you do matters in, in that it's driven by the character behind it, the conscience behind it, our faith. But more to the point, Peter quickly reminds us in verse 18 that we can do nothing to earn God's favor. We were ransomed from sin and death by nothing less than the blood of Christ, God's own son. And his righteousness is imputed. That's a fancy word for credited. His righteousness is credited to us. It was the plan all along. And like obedient children, you're being sanctified and, and motivated not by striving, but by our love for one another. Born from the knowledge that God is love, a love he has shown in his death for us. And this love, one for another, it's proof of God's love. And having been born again through God's love, having this foundation of assurance rooted in God's eternal and everlasting word, that fear is driven out by the good news of the gospel. And we get to, we get to chapter 2, the, the, uh, the so 
I always pay attention to the so's and the therefore. He says, so, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. It's a tall order indeed, and I'm pretty sure when I read it, when Peter says all, he means all. Uh, it's another implication for both how we relate one to another, but also to the community around us. But look here in verse 2, where Peter acknowledges that upon conversion, if it's happened, we begin as babes who must grow into the maturity of our salvation by feeding on spiritual milk. I think it's important for us to remember that we feed on Jesus by faith in him, um, not by our own striving. And it doesn't mean we should be unconcerned with doing good. Rather, it's important that whatever good is done doesn't cause us to forget our fundamental neediness. Jesus isn't like this great fishing guide in the sky who says, give a man a fish and he eats for a day, teach a man to fish and he eats for a lifetime. It's rather Jesus gives us a fish every day because without that fish, we would starve. Luther describes this state as being simultaneously, Martin Luther that is, simultaneously justified and sinful at the same time. Uh, simul justus et peccator in the Latin. Christians are two things at the same time, both enduringly sinful and completely forgiven and justified by the imputed or credited righteousness of Christ. Uh, Albert prayed about this this morning, um, that, that our sinful nature um, would, be re, that, that would diminish and that our, that our righteousness in Christ would come forward. We have this dual identity. It's not a half-and-half half relationship, though. It's 100% and 100%. And, and paradoxically, we're saved fully and made righteous in Christ. And at the same time, we're still the same old sinner we used to be. And a Christian, as, as Paul says in Colossians, is hidden in Christ. Or um, as he says in Galatians, I have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Unfortunately, I think we often revert to a less-than-reformed, it's our natural tendency, a less-than-reformed understanding of the persistent sin in our lives, as well as the means by which we are made holy. Take, for example, the recent story of Maddie Runkles. Maddie's a Christian high school student in Maryland, and she was banned from attending graduation, even though she has straight A's. Why? Because she was pregnant. In a letter to parents of the school, the principal said, Maddie wasn't being disciplined because she's pregnant, but because, quote, she was immoral. Essentially, the school put the sexual sin into a separate category, a debilitating category of its own, that it was irreversible and catastrophic. And the effect on Maddie was that she actually considered having an abortion. Um, she, uh, she says the humiliation and continual punishment were that, that rough on her from the Christian community. She writes... Some pro-life people are against the killing of unborn babies, but they won't speak out in support of the girl who chooses to keep her baby. It's an interesting dynamic, an irony of peer pressure, isn't it? The peer pressure to have premarital sex, but on the other hand, the, the shunning by her community. And, and, it's, and then this humiliation leads to the temptation for an even greater sin. Um, and so rather than this school being a community of compassion, they had taken on this culture of shame. And on the surface, it begs the question of really what binds them together? Is it the gospel um, or, or is it some set of rules and regulations? But below the surface, I think the problem is far more pervasive and much less institutional than we think. 
they were collectively acting like a static organization, the school was, rather than together representing the dynamic living and loving relationship of the Church of Christ. I remember um, years ago before Facebook and Twitter, early days of the internet, everyone had a personal blog, it seemed like. And there were these Covenant students um, that had a free blogging platform. It was called Chattablogs. And they, they had set it up here in Chattanooga. And I used to read stuff on there all the time. And one of the guys that set it up, um, for, for, for reasons that are really irrelevant to the story, had become quite disgruntled with his alma mater. And he would often use this blog as a platform to throw darts at the college. Now, you know, his complaints, whether legitimate or not, always seemed to be aimed at the sum of the parts rather than at any particular person. And it seemed to me always that he forgot that as an institution, the school was made up of sinful people um, who were, though working for a Christian college, were simul justus at peccator, just like him. And I think it's important to keep that in mind as we return to the text, where in verse 5 of chapter 2, Peter describes Christians as living stones who are being put together with other, I'll call it imperfectly perfect stones, and being built into a spiritual house, the church. Peter calls these stones a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices, which I believe would have really resonated with the Jewish um, audience of the day. And in the same way that Israel was to be a blessing to the nations, the church of Christ, he says here, is being built into a blessing for God's own possession, verse 9, for his purposes and glory. Again, being set apart for something other. Now, you would think that a house made up of saint and sinner stones would be a mess, wouldn't you? And, and it really can be. Think back to the story of you 2 and, and 1, when some of the band members were busy pursuing their own agendas and the problems that caused. And what about Paul's epistles? Um, I don't even know where to start. All of the early church uh, infighting, disunity, politics, grumbling. Um, and, and Peter quotes here from the prophet Isaiah in verse 6 and forward. He says that... Christ has been laid as the chief cornerstone, and whoever believes in him will not be put to, put to shame. You're all familiar with the idea of a cornerstone, the first stone set in the construction of a masonry building. And it's important since all the other stones are set in reference to that stone. And so here, Peter's pointing to our unity in Christ as the sole determinator of the design, the function, and direction of those living stones, which are those saint and sinner chosen and precious. He goes on to say that some will reject those stones, but it doesn't change the power of God's plan. Christ will be made known by the faith of his followers, those who were once orphans, those who were once merciless, and now God's people, recipients of his mercy to proclaim his name and what he's done. And again, in view of our trials and sufferings, we're reminded here in the last couple of verses, um, 11 and 12, that this life is not all there is. A greater glory awaits. A glory worth service, worth the sacrifice, worth the suffering, and even death. And, and then there in verse 12, we're told to keep our conduct with the Gentiles honorable, that they might see the power of the gospel in action. And again, this gospel call is propelling us beyond ourselves, both within the church, but also outside the church, and reshaping how we define relationships. So, so what are we to make of Peter's exhortations for ourselves today in this time and, and in this place? What questions come to mind about our faith and function at CVPC as a little C church, part of the bigger universal church? 
Are we acting like an organization like that high school in Maryland exhibiting a, a culture of shame? Or are we living as a healthy organism rooted in Christ, a community of compassion? Are there ways in which we reflect both a dynamic of shame and a dynamic of compassion? That is, in the same way that we were simul justus at Peccator. I believe the answer to that is, is yes. And I think in order to take stock, we need to be thinking both corporately as a body, but also individually. Um, and I believe, um, and this, this goes to the, the sermon title, I believe that CVPC is both a lively and a lovely place, just like we are both saints and sinners. Lively, I mean like you're getting kind of lively, you know, you're like getting a little ornery. Um, and while the saint and sinner paradox persists on this side of heaven, we're stones that are made alive in Christ, being built into a temple for God's glory and his purposes. So for the sake of application, let's consider some of the habits that can often make us as living stones rather lively around the church, contrasting them with what makes us lovely. I think we can become rather lively when our focus is twisted in on ourselves in the distorting and deadly pursuit of our own agendas and our own glory. And in our twisted and twisting pursuit of our own glory, um, I'm reminded of James chapter 4 that we, we covet, we fight, and we quarrel. We gossip, we manipulate, we form protective and offensive alliances, we defend ourselves, we isolate others, we undermine, we distort the truth, we create insider language, we make inside jokes, we ridicule others, we pressure them. We use social conformity rather than gospel conformity. And we do this and more to protect our turf, to expand our influence, and to secure a name for ourselves. Those are the habits that Bono sings about in the song one when he says, well, we hurt each other, then we do it again. You say love is a temple, love a higher law. Love is a temple, love the higher law. You ask me to enter, but then you make me crawl. And I can't keep holding on what you got when all you got is hurt and it makes me wonder is it any surprise when people often leave the church they do so with this feeling of being personally damaged and attacked by it but the good news that it is it is in Christ that in contrast the church is primarily a lovely place and a transformative place because we're people who are being rescued and disentangled from that deadly distortion of our souls by the powerful love of Jesus Christ. The church is lovely because we learn by the light and courage of Christ's living and tender word in order to recognize our own self-serving habits, to name them rightly, just as Bill shared with us last week, to own them and confess them as the culpable sins that they are, to repent of them, to seek forgiveness, and to pursue restoration. Church communities with such a dynamic of compassion have an attentive to the attentiveness to the least and to the lost and to the lonely. They consciously seek out, meet, and have extended conversations with new people every week. They first talk about what they like or admire in a person before they launch into a laundry list of, of things that they don't like and their pet peeves. And they're communities that cultivate an eagerness to discern the gifts that each person brings to each conversation, recognizing that it's not our own agenda that's being inter interrupted, but it's by the powerful working of the Spirit that he's 
bringing people into our lives as part of his agenda. And those habits of compassion uh, harmonizing with each other demonstrate the power of the cross and they show the loveliness of the king and his kingdom. I am uh, I'm reminded about our recent session retreat. We, we shared a little bit about, about it and how Carl Chaplin uh, led that for us. And at one point during the retreat, Carl was channeling Tim Keller. Um, you should have seen the transformation. It was like Kim Te- it was like Tim Keller was just standing right up there. Carl gained like 30 pounds. His voice deepened. He sounded so smart and so eloquent. Didn't gain any hair, though. Actually, I think he lost some. Um, but, but Carl brought up this Tim Keller idea about what makes the church unique, speaking about the difference between uh, an aggregation and a congregation. An aggregation, he said, was simply a group of people of many distinct backgrounds and interests that are not connected or bound together, like people at a concert or a ball game. A congregation is an assembly of persons that are brought together for a common purpose that are connected and depend on one another. And the distinction that makes the church a congregation and not a, um, an aggregation, according to Carl Keller, uh, is that the Bible portrays how a group of God's people are to be a congregation with this Greek word, I, I, I don't know if I'll butcher the pr- pronunciation, alalon. Close enough. Um, <laughs> It's the Greek word, and it appears a hundred times in the New Testament. And it's translated as one another, each other, or mutual. And it's used to express the relationship that believers have for other believers. And it carries with it this clear concept that we must help and depend on each other in Christ. And if we go back to that song we began with, uh, one detail that many people miss in the song one is this repeated statement that, We get to carry each other. It isn't an exhortation, it's a reminder. It's not that we got to carry each other, it's we get to carry each other. The way forward toward a flourishing, healthy community dynamic and mutual enjoyment is to set aside pride, discover how together we're gifts to each other. The temptation, though, as we've discussed, is to make demands of one another, to gain leverage, to manipulate one another, those are the ways of destruction. Think of Dan. I wish Dan was here. Think of his band, favorite band of sinners, the Corinthians, who had split up into factions. They had rallied around the early church figures. And the Apostle Paul reminded them in his first letter that they had been united in Christ and that all the various groups and teachers in the church were God's gift to them. Later in chapter 12 of the same letter, Paul discusses how the unity and diversity of their community as Christ's body is all about how they're one, but they're not the same. Only when they receive and serve one another, though, will the entire community and the the world around them enjoy flourishing. So let me close with this um, Bible story illustration to underscore what I've just said. You all remember in Mark um, the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. Um, It's in chapter 2. I'll read the first five verses here. And when he returned to Capernaum, that is Jesus, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith... He said to the paralytic's son, 
your sins are forgiven. Now, obviously, there's this group of men here that are literally carrying this paralytic. Um, but, but what resonates for me when I think about the song lyric of one and what's so beautiful is that the communal dynamic is essential to the forgiveness and healing in this story. Jesus forgives and heals the paralytic when he sees the faith of his friends. And we belong one to another. Each one of us are gifts. And we do indeed lose sight of that very often, seeing each other as obstacles to flourishing and mutual delight. What's needed, though, I think, is a clarified vision, a gospel-shaped imagination, so that once again we see that we're, we're one, but we're not the same, but we get to carry each other, carry each other, one. Let's pray.